Today on episode number 474 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Deliberative Pedagogy with Timothy J. Schaefer. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. According to recent survey polling from the Wall Street Journal, the share of Americans who say they value being involved in their community has sharply declined over the last several decades. Similarly, tolerance for others, deemed very important by 80% of Americans as recently as four years ago, has now fallen to 58%, illustrating stark political polarization that may play a role in dwindling levels of civic engagement. These growing divides are part of what prompted the Biden School of Public Policy and Administration at the University of Delaware to partner with the Stavros Niarchos Foundation in launching a new civil discourse pilot program in the fall of 2021. Tim, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks. I am so grateful to have been introduced to your work and what a pleasure it is to get to know you a little bit today. As you know already, I just wrapped up graduation. It's a darn good thing this is not a video podcast because I've got a case of hat head. But other than that, I think I'm ready to go. I I always tell my students I love graduation because I bought my regalia as a doctoral student. And that it's not cheap, right? And so I, I I think about it as price per wear. So I try to wear it as much as I can, but like it's not really the thing you wear to the grocery store or other things. And and when when COVID, the first year of COVID, when everything really just shut down and we were all like trying to figure out what in the world we were doing that first spring. I I actually marched around my front yard and had one of my children record me on my phone. And like I said to my students is like a a celebratory moment in honor of it. But yeah, regalia is a lot of fun, but those hats don't help anybody. I don't think. (laughs) No, (laughs) no. I so enjoyed getting to research your work a bit before today's conversation. And I just want to share a quick anecdote about early, early in my teaching career. I've been at this for almost 20 years. I have been very interested in politics and those kinds of conversations about really important matters. And and so even though it's not my discipline, I went to a debate at my institution. And yes, Tim, I was incredibly naive. I watched the people who were attending go around and tell the people to go to the table where they were taking people's perspectives and give the opposite answer of how they felt about something so their team could win. And I have air quotes going since it's an audio. And I thought like, well, this is a horrible way of learning about things is to manipulate your answers in advance so your team can win. And then there wasn't a lot of really defining of terms in advance. And so fast forwarding all these decades later and being introduced to your work, I was instantly intrigued and so grateful for the work that you and so many do researching this area. Would you first share with us about focusing more on discourse than debate? Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's a great question. And I think for a lot of us, maybe experiences as students in things like high school or, or even our own undergraduate experience, 
I, I, I remember that kind of the, the, the pro con sort of books around like the pros and cons of American history or the whatever else. And, you know, there's something to be said about digging into kind of questions in a way that you are advocating for a certain kind of position. And I think a lot of that's kind of what leads into this kind of debate framework, right? And when we talk about kind of the roots of these words, I think there's something really striking to remember that, especially in the kind of dialogue deliberation world, debate often carries this kind of connotation of like, it's it's bad, right? And the root of the word like for debate really literally means like to beat down, right? To fight. It, so there's a winner, there's a loser, as someone who has been a tenured faculty member in a communication studies department in the past and the home of a really good competitive debate team, I would often get reminded that debate's not really this total boogeyman, right? It's a great opportunity. So I just I have that qualifying statement for for that. But I think more generally, as a not just as a pedagogy, but as a disposition when we think about kind of how do we have difference and how do we engage each other? That sort of orientation only gets us so far and and it sets us up in in some ways of being clearly cut like this is good, this is bad. I, I won that one, right? That that sort of stuff. In contrast to how we often think about things like dialogue or even say deliberation, kind of moving more towards debate. In 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 one of our books, Creating Space for Democracy, we have this great little one of these tables, it's all about roots and meanings of these words. And so we break this down from things like debate and discussion, conversation to dialogue and deliberation. But as you move more in that kind of dialogic direction, right, this language of like this kind of sense of exchange and this flow of meaning, right, it's through, between, across, that sort of stuff. It starts to have these different connotations that I think open up the possibilities of like being more potentially constructive, right, with other people. And when we think about that in in classrooms or we think about that in, in communities or whatever that environment might be, it just starts to set, I think, kind of set the table for a different way of being with one another. So instead of showing up and being like, I'm going to win this and I just have to kind of queue up in my mind, what's the thing that's going to knock them down or or kind of elevate the position I have? It's how do I step into this and say, I've got some views, I've, I've got some knowledge, right? This sort of stuff. And yet... What do I not know or experience that could inform and shape how I think about this thing, whatever it might be, or let alone the people, right, that I'm talking to? And I and I have found that for a long, a long time as somebody who now like studies this, but in practicing in, in different kind of contexts, a lot of community-based work and 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 things like that, that like this is what helps groups of people do, I think, the kind of collective work that often is re- required of us to do, right? In some kind of society where we're not all, we're not, we're not all the same, right? We're not homogenous in a lot of respects. And if we really want to value that, how do we help kind of create those conditions? So that's where I think the kind of dialogue deliberation work as a contrast to debate can be really helpful. And for students, I will say, it's such a contrast because they're not, they're really not accustomed to that, right? They're usually kind of priming for like, what's the professor want me to say? So I'm trying to trying to get this quite right. In contrast to like adding kind of in, in a slightly more incremental sort of way, some collective knowledge about the thing, in contrast to just like kind of getting the right answer. Is there a story that comes to mind with you, either in a classroom or perhaps in a community where someone with significantly less knowledge and expertise than you have in a particular area did inform and shape your thinking or perhaps someone in the room that you just got to observe who had a lot more power or a lot more knowledge where that beginner's mind, a novice perspective actually illuminated something again, either for you or for someone that you got to observe. 
Yeah, I mean, gosh, this is a which one do you pick situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so glad I to mean, hear I mean, that. I mean, but it, it's it's a great question, and I think, especially in higher education, for a lot of us, we're prepared. We we are professionalized in a way that moves us. And I always have to remind these undergrad students when they're like. I was just walking on the the sidewalk a couple of weeks ago, having this conversation of like, you know, when you have that realization of an undergraduate degree really is about this broad sweep of understanding what does it mean to be a human, right? How do we make sense of information? What's all the stuff going on? And as you move kind of up, especially in kind of an academic way from maybe master's into PhD and things like that, you're, 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 you're focusing in on the content, right? The methods, maybe the, the focus, the area that you're exploring, all that sort of stuff. And so for a lot of us in higher ed, I think there's that moment that like we can know a whole lot about less, right? In some ways that we feel more justified in, in making certain kind of claims. And paradoxically, you also recognize how little you know about a bunch of stuff because you know more about some, but not all. So I think there's something really fascinating, particularly when we think about things like epistemology in higher ed and kind of really wrestle with what does that even mean? Not just as like a, a, t- a topic for a seminar class, but like fundamentally, how do we know? And a big part of my my research now and, and shaping now really back into graduate school and earlier was this recognition of knowledge exists in lots of places. You know, Frank Fisher, who wrote a lot about democracy and expertise, he's a retired professor now, professor emeritus at Rutgers. It really just kind of turned me on to like, how do we think about technical knowledge and expertise and kind of lay knowledge? And I I was really fascinated, actually, particularly it, it, I kind of stopped doing this line of research in my doctoral program, but around the re- role of like emotion and deliberation. And there were all these stories of how there were like issues going on. And in a lot of ways, we set up the panel of the experts in the front of the room and they're going to tell everybody like, this is what's this is what's going on. Or if you choose this, this is going to happen, right? Here's your kind of your, your smorgasbord of, of things. And, and here it is. And there was this one clipping of uh, the paper. I was collecting all this stuff at that time. And it was this line about basically this transformative issue in a community. And and basically the folks who were showing up, who were going to be most directly affected by whatever decision was made. It was like, leave your emotions at the door, right? You're like, And I, I just remember being struck by that of like, what is it that makes it so easy for us to kind of shut out certain ways of experiencing the world and kind of seeing it or, or having some visceral reaction to what's going on, which is, a, it's, a, it's a little bit different what you're, than what you were asking, but mm. in a more direct way, one of, I like books, this is audio, so there's no visual component to justify or <laughs> Close to your eyes though, close your eyes a, 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 unless you're driving. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so imagine I've had people walk into my office for the first time. They're like, oh yeah, this is exactly what I thought, right? So there's just stacks and all this sort of stuff. But one of the books that is kind of on my desk right now. And I'm just rereading it again, looking at it in a slightly more cursory way this time, but it's called Braiding Sweetgrass. And it's the subtitle is Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teaching of Plants. And so not so much the plant piece to me, but I think when we think about who knows and what do they know, that so often we can, I think, default into that category of like, oh, they're a PhD if we're talking about higher ed, or they're the person who's the local government or or they're the planner. And so let them let them tell us what we should do or go on in contrast to the person who's who's lived in the place for maybe decades, right? And so that's when I mentioned Fisher, like he's got some fascinating work of 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 communities 
decades ago who were recognizing there's a cancer cluster. What's going on? What are the environmental factors that couldn't be fixed or figured out by the outside experts? But it turned out it was all the moms and the community who figured it out. So when we think about that, right? How do we recognize and value that? I think is a really, really important thing. And, and as we prepare students, no matter what level of education we're doing, is to remind them, like, as much as we acquire kind of the technical knowledge and then the greater expertise about it, that we shouldn't shut out others who don't have those kind of credentials. And also for ourselves, like, we might be able to speak from a place that's not only lined up in in the way that seems like that's how we're supposed to how we're supposed to know something. So at the heart of all of this kind of dialogue deliberation work really is this sense of how do we kind of create space for not people just to have conversation, but for us to do, I think, the difficult work of of making democracy work as it should. And that being rooted in the idea of people having a sense of power and agency over over their lives. Allow me to take you briefly back to that debate or some of the early debates that I attended at the university where I work. I was incredibly frustrated in a debate about universal health care where most of the people in the room weren't paying for their own insurance, didn't have experience with what co-pays were. And I thought, oh, my gosh, we need to define our terms. But I didn't I, I've thought about that since then so many times of before you start to decide whether you agree or disagree with something that might be helpful. But in doing some research to prepare for today, you were able to introduce me to the work of Daniel Yankelovich. And I really liked this idea because I thought, no, it's not just it's not just the words it's not that's not what's missing. It's consciousness raising. Would you talk a little bit about his model and how that fits in with deliberative pedagogy and and kind of what I what I may have seen was missing in the room but way back then? Yeah. So so Dan Yankelovich was this really fascinating person. The, the kind of joke is people who knew him, I I I didn't get to know him. But he was one of these pollsters doing public opinion sort of work. So all the all the names that we would think about now today as the the names of 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 the polls that we would just kind of recognize as like these are the the organizations that that do polling. He he was he was one of them, right? So Gallup and others, they were like friends. Mm -hmm. And so it's always funny to remember like these are people, right, who were doing this sort of stuff. And what he came to realize. And I think this is true for higher ed, but it's also true when we're going into election cycles and everything else. Anytime you hear like, there was a survey that talked to such and such and whatever percentage of people say a thing, those are always snapshots in time. There's that moment, right? There's this, this literally, whether it's a, maybe in the past, right? On a phone or on, on a cell phone now or online or whatever it is, but wherever, wherever this is occurring, those are just these kind of truly a snapshot. It's uninformed. It's just like eliciting a response. What do you think about X? And so Yankelovich recognized this and he wrote a couple books that and that are kind of really relevant to this but there's one in particular called coming to public judgment making democracy work in a complex world um early 90s i think it was 91 if i'm remembering correctly and his whole concept that he really introduced which i use and lots of others it's included in in some of the the work that we do and and and, and the two books particularly the, the deliberative pedagogy which you know was kind of the foundation for some of the work that I and others are doing, giving some language to it, and then the follow-up, the Creating Space for Democracy book in 2017 and 19, respectively. But Yankelovich really 
talks about this kind of like coming to public judgment, right? And public judgment was going from that place of like, there's a thing going on now, I, like basically awareness of it, it existing. And before we come to that place of resolution, there's this big kind of kind of hill, right? You kind of got to climb to that. And this big chunk of moving from that first place of like, oh, thing going on, right? To resolution, understanding, whatever it might be on that other end is that public judgment piece. And what that means is we got to think about where do we get information? How do we think about it? Not just, again, back to that kind of polling piece, not just as some snapshot, but over some period of time as an individual trying to understand what's going on, but most likely and typically, and this is where like the the polling that he started to do shaped by all this sort of work was in collective sorts of ways to where people were kind of learning and listening with one another, really thinking about this. And so the book that he wrote a few years after this called The Magic of Dialogue, and that was in the late 90s, right? It was like, what was it? Trans subtitle, Transforming Conflict into Cooperation. And I'm going to give myself points if I'm actually correct on both of those subtitles, <laughs> by the way. And and he actually has this great graphic in that book about setting up kind of differences between debate and dialogue, uh, which I would use and, and use all the time in workshops and things like that. But but like that, this whole kind of public judgment orientation, I think, is a really helpful and important one because it it moves us from like. And, and we can think about it in classes, we can think about it in co-curricular learning, we can think, I mean, whatever the situations might be, is like, how do we move from just like, hey, what do you think about this? And I say the thing, and and we walk away, and we don't do anything more with it. So even like, like pre-post sort of stuff, we could think about it in some ways like that. Or what are these processes, and to stay in the academic world here for a moment, for a semester-long experience, what is it that helps us not just talk about doing that sort of thing, but how do we actually do that? In the places where we have some level of, of, of agency and influence, whether it's a classroom, if it's a residence hall, what, some student group, whatever it might be, to where you can actually do some of that sort of stuff, to where we we kind we come to understand like what is going on, how do we collectively kind of wrestle with with some of this really complex content, right? And and also like not just learning more about the thing that we're talking about, but also the people who are involved, right? And so that's where. This kind of collective effort here is, to me, to, to me is really important. I think this would be a great time for you to share a bit about the SNF Ithaca Initiative and some of the ways that that work is supporting the kinds of things that you're talking about here. Yeah. So here at the Biden School of Public Policy and Administration at the University of Delaware, uh, we've launched in 2021 something called the Stavros Niarchos Foundation Ithaca Initiative, SNF Ithaca for short. And it is very much rooted in these, a lot of these themes, right, that we've been talking about. It's fundamentally about what does it mean to be a citizen in the world, right? How, what, and, and, but more than that, what does it mean to be a democratic citizen? So that's really important as a qualifier. And so we think there are these kind of three pillars of what makes that possible. So civil discourse is really essential, civic engagement, and this third that we're really kind of adding to those two is this kind of recognition, you know, media and democracy is one way to talk about it, but it really is more this kind of mediated public square, right? So the way that I kind of shorthand this is how do we talk to each other? How do we act with one another? And also how do we understand all that within the world that we exist in, right? Most of how we exist today is mediated, right? It's how we get information. It's how we communicate with one another, whether it's on Zoom or on a phone, it's even in just like kind of everyday interactions, 
uh, a colleague of mine, avoid, he, he studies media, media here with me as well. And he always makes this point. He's like, yeah, it's down to the cup of coffee. He's like, unless you're drinking my coffee, he's like, it's mediated. I'm telling you it's pretty good or not, right? That sort of thing. And so we, I think we have to recognize that we today, especially when we're talking about social media and the like, are in such an environment that it's really important for us, for us not just to take that as a given, but we really need to be kind of critical and thoughtful about that. And so SNF Ithaca really is geared uh, towards this, like this question of what does it mean to be an active and engaged citizen? And so for us, a lot of that is for undergraduate students. We have a student leaders program that we have students from across the university who are part of it, all sorts of majors. So we have some policy majors, but also international relations. We have one who's a biochem major who's really interested in religious dialogue. And so like, we've got this whole mix of folks walking from different, I think, disciplinary perspectives, but also different experiences and places that is really, really, really rich. And one of our annual kind of signature events that we do, we have fellows who come to campus to do workshops and talks. They come into classes. In fact, there's one here literally right now who's been here for the last two days talking about media and its role in democracy appropriately. So we, we have opportunities for folks to join us to complement the conversations and the research that we're doing kind of in-house. But we have multiple events that are for this kind of broader network that we're helping to cultivate. And so one of them is through our SNF Ithaca National Student Dialogue. We had about 100 students from around the country join us earlier this semester from research intensive universities to regional public schools, to small liberal arts colleges, to historically black institutions, right? I mean, we've got kind of a mixed geography, kind of ideological diversity, right? So we've got, we've got, I mean, literally Harvard and Chicago and Ohio State and Tennessee, the University of Central Florida, Berkeley, like we've kind of got the mix. Providence College, like just kind of all over the board. Simpson College in Iowa, right? So we've got people literally I think we've only got so much bandwidth, but like helping bring folks together who wouldn't really be showing up to to engage with one another. And so we integrate civil discourse into public policy of like, so they're naming, they're showing up and saying, we've got some issues going on where we are. They helped identify that. And we give them some some tools to where they learn over the course of a few days with one another. And they literally workshop, what are we going to do? What is the issue? How do we name it? How do we talk about the stakeholders? What are our our processes of actually engaging them to address this thing that we say is pretty important. And then they take it home. And as we learned from last year, some places actually redesigned their welcome orientation sort of experience to say, we need to be able to talk about this, this stuff, right? This kind of polarization, this kind of partisanship from the get-go. So they talked to residents, life, student life, sort of people, all the appropriate kind of channels, and they did it. And I think one of our hopes is really to help kind of build this network, this kind of culture to where that's a practice for students. But we're continuing to expand that. We have kind of a network for scholars as well um, who are either directing these programs or connected in some fashion. And as we continue to expand this, particularly into this kind of media, media and democracy space, yet again saying, who needs to be in these conversations? Who's doing, I think, the 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 real work here of the scholarship, the research, the writing about it, but also like teaching it, right? And and also interacting with the students who are who are thinking about these things, or maybe not thinking about it, but maybe they should, right? That sort of thing. So many things struck me and stood out as I reviewed your so many webinars and articles and all of that. And and one thing I think would be really interesting to people listening is that you talk about going beyond teaching about something. 
And I don't know if skills is too elementary of a word to use, but I mean, you've literally got ways of gauging the extent to which you're seeing deliberative approaches come forth. And you talk about sometimes seeing failure and let's try that again. And I'm, I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit as as your own teaching has evolved and you've learned how to do this better, where do you see most people struggling with getting to where they need to get to be effective at these kinds of approaches? I, I'm going to hesitate to say buy, just buy the book, but, but a place that might be helpful is on page 195 <laughs> of Deliberative Pedagogy. Um, uh, joke, joke, joking aside, one of the things in there that we recognized is that a lot of people who do this sort of work do it from a place of kind of values and conviction, right? We we recognize that we want to do we want to do the work that we do as as educators in in a in a certain way, right? So there's a part of this that's just so value laden that regardless of maybe the measurable outcomes, we're going to do it, right? And then there's that other piece of like, well, but does like does it really does it really right have some of the effects that we want we want to think about it? And so I think just to, to name some of that, and and I'm kind of pointing to one of the chapters in delivered pedagogy is this kind of learning outcomes rubric, which is super helpful to talk about this kind of developmental place of how do we think about things like collaboration and reason giving and like the ability to synthesize ideas and information, think about trade offs and tensions. Reflection, relationships, empathy, those those kind of categories and, and looking at it from a standpoint of like, where is it starting, right? For collaboration, I'll just use this as an example, right? Going from prioritizing one's self-interest and opinions all the way to the other end, this kind of capstone deliberating as it's referred to here is understanding civic responsibility and demonstrates a commitment to work with others to come to shared decisions, right? Those are really different ways of thinking about how do we kind of look and approach look at these things and kind of approach it in particular ways. But I think I strayed a little bit from your question, but like, how do, how do we actually do this? And what are some of the challenges that students have is, I'll just say plainly here, is I think a lot of students, most students, not all students, but most walk in and sit in a chair and look at you and are waiting for your slides to talk about the thing. So chapter, whatever, and, 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 and we're going to go that way. And I'm going to prepare for the, for the next quiz or the test or the, whatever the, uh, the signpost is that we're really accustomed to. And, and a lot of the, myself included, but a lot of the people who do this sort of work kind of buck some of those models and it's really uncomfortable and jarring for students. I think at first, right. This idea of I've done ungrading in a lot of these courses, we do a lot of experience, right? So we're not just reading about how do we have deliberation, but we're doing it, right? We're using process models like in class to talk about real things and and then talking about that too, of like, why is this why is this particularly different? In our creating space for democracy book, we we lean on a on a kind of a streams of engagement model from something called the National Coalition for Dialogue and Deliberation. It's super helpful because not it's it's one thing just to say like we should talk to each other. Well, yeah. Okay, that sounds really good. But depending on what you're trying to do, there are different processes and structures that are going to help you accomplish that because there's nothing more frustrating than walking in. I'm, I'm going to talk about a community conversation kind of environment here for a moment, but there's nothing more frustrating than walking into some meeting where you've tried to figure out like childcare and like dinner for other things. This is like after hours. And all of a sudden you think you're going to resolve something. And two hours later, you walk out and you say, nothing's been resolved. This is actually just more complicated, right? And so like setting 
setting kind of clear outs on the on the outset like expectations of what we're going to do right this is a one time conversation or this is going to be months right we're going to meet every few weeks we're going to kind of build like sustained dialogue for example like from the onset like it has it has to do that like it doesn't accomplish what it's supposed like what it's designed to do and so when when we think about that from kind of an experience in a classroom or where where it goes beyond that i think having having a kind of calibrated for what you're trying to like, are you, are we just trying to have like exploratory conversation? Are we just trying to start to get to know each other or the thing that we're talking about, or are we really deciding, right? Those are two really different things all under the big umbrella of civil discourse, dialogue, deliberation, but it matters, right? Of how, how we approach what we're, what we're trying to do, because there's nothing like, there's nothing worse than feeling like you wasted your time. And I think for students too, I think not just to kind of talk about it, but to actually experience it in a way of like, oh, that's really different. So like right now I have students who we, we did a few different processes and there's something, be- a beautiful model called story circles, right? It's really simple. You sit down, you have a prompt, everybody has a set amount of time, all equal, and you don't get to interrupt. You don't even get to ask questions until everybody goes. And then there's kind of a next phase. And that's super awkward for some people because they really want to say something. They want to jump in. But what happened? What I, I last semester, for example, I did this in one of these courses that I teach, kind of a foundational class to SNF Ethica, and there was one group that got really deep. I wasn't in that conversation. There were a bunch of little clusters in class, and they were literally like tearful, and they, and they said they're like, "I've never, I've never done something like that in a classroom," and I didn't think I would, but because of where it went. The, the vulnerability, but we were deep into a semester and I think they felt more comfortable doing that. Like, and that, which is an important thing to say here. Like you don't just walk in the first day and be like, Hey, we're going to like spill our guts to each other, or we're going to like kind of become open in a way that I don't want to, like, I don't know that person sitting beside me. Right. But there comes a point where there's a willingness. And I think I, lit- I literally today, I'm not even, I'm not even lying about this just because we're all on podcast. Um, <laughs> you lie, you lie when you're not on podcast, but exactly. But I'm just a rampant liar when I'm not on a podcast. That's <laughs> just, to, that's just who I am. Good to meet you in this context. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is great. This is great. Um, I was, but I was saying to a student, I was like, one of the I was walking down the sidewalk who I'm trying to recruit one of these students to be in our program next year, our student leaders program. And the other person is a graduating senior who, if she wasn't a senior, I would be hounding her to be in the program too. And I said, I was like, this is one of the really like, I don't, I don't want to say like heartbreaking things about being a professor, but there comes this moment where these two students were both, I'd say timid, kind of quiet in the front of the room, very good students, but just not vocal in a lot of ways. And now they're just, they, there's just such a level of comfort. They're really thoughtful. They, they bring so much. And the student is now going to graduate. And I was saying to her, I was like, this is the sad part in a sem- like a semester long experience when you get to meet somebody like her. I was and saying this to her. I was like, and you're about out the door, right? And so we're just getting to that place where we're really starting to feel like, we could really talk about this stuff in a collective way, right? Not just in the kind of one-on-one, but, and then you're gone, right? I'm waving goodbye and say like, best of luck in your your future endeavors sort of stuff. And so I think that's the the really fascinating thing about this sort of work. When you have these moments, these gl- these moments of kind of glimpsing into like who they are beyond the kind of the veneer of being a student in a class, taking the tests and the quizzes and all this sort of stuff. Cause we, we, we do all sorts of experiential stuff. Um, we're using different ways of assessment. And my hope always is, I think for this particular student, is that she's going to go off and do other things. And this is the sort of like 
I think the stickiness of some of this work, if, like you may not be walking around being like talking about citations for like Yankelovich, 1991, right? I don't think she's going to be doing that in the future, but I think she is going to recognize there's a different way for me to be in the world that can be shaped by this sort of model, whether it's in a workplace, maybe it's with interpersonal relationships with family, friends, things like that. But there's another way of being because so much of our environment right now is I mean, we hear these narratives, right? It's deeply polarized, it's partisan, and they all know it. They all experience that they're they're living in this. And I think when we have the opportunity to see another way of talking about something like politics, right? We can wrestle with these, and we're talking about policy issues or a, a lot because it's a policy course. And like these are all choices that people in communities make. And we have to recognize like there are ways in which we can approach that. In a, in a slightly different way. And, and what opportunities exist when we do that, right? When we recognize you've got a different angle on this, but if we can talk about that, there might be something that we actually agree on underneath it. The, it's the, the positions are not necessarily the same as the values that are, are shaping it. And if we can, I think, as educators, help create those conditions for students to not just kind of intellectualize that, but actually experience that, I think we're, 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 all, we're all the better. This is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. And I wanted to recommend a podcast that relates to something that shows up in your work. And you said it during this episode, Tim, and that it has to do with naming things. There is a beautiful podcast episode where Anderson Cooper interviews Stephen Colbert. And it's the only episode of this series that I've listened to, but there's a whole series that Anderson Cooper is doing about grief. This particular episode is called Grateful for Grief. And Tim, why it reminds me of that is just the power that it can be when we settle ourselves down and we actually name things, how how incredibly transformative that can be. And they both speak so openly and, and heartbreaking, but but powerful ways about their own experiences with grief and heartbreak. And one part of the episode, and I can't even remember which one of these two men that it was that that shares this, but they really just break down in, in a very visceral way, talking about how they couldn't remember a parent's, the sound of a parent's voice. Mm-hmm. And I just, it was such a moving episode. And some listeners may, if you've been listening for, for a little bit, back on episode 462, I had my mom on the podcast and I read her a column I wrote about teaching lessons I learned from mom. And I only get slightly slightly choked up in that episode, but I literally didn't think I could do it. And I just feel so good now to have overcome my fear of the ugly cry on the podcast. You know, that kind of idea we made it through. And I have done the ugly cry on the podcast, by the way, Tim, but that, <laughs> I that, didn't, that's all right. That's all I didn't that's on good. that that's one. Good. And it, and it just the, it's a beautiful episode. So even if you think like, why would I want to cry so hard over? I mean, it is a very a raw, real conversation between two men, but it's just such a powerful example of naming. And to me, I feel like we don't get to heal from so many things in life if we can't name things and learn how to do that well in healthy and whole ways. So it's just a beautiful conversation I would really recommend. And I can't wait, by the way, Tim, I don't recommend things just like you only lie on when you're not, wait, you don't lie on when you're 
podcast. Let me let me just be clear here to your audience. <laughs> I, I I like to think of myself as like a genuinely like decent person. Good, so I good you know, to know. If we cross paths, I I, I will good to know. I, I will most likely be truthful with you. I just so want, good just to, to know. So I I um cannot wait to read your book and then and books I know, but the one specifically I'm really excited about is the deliberative pedagogy one because you've shared about how it crosses so many disciplines and that's that's the one i'm most looking forward to reading first and but i don't recommend things if i haven't read them yet so i am going to officially also recommend that people go look at your website read watch some of the webinars that you've done and the people that you're connected with i mean this is just a wonderful body of work that speaking of healing I think can be healing for those people listening in the United States. Boy, does our nation ever need healing of these kinds of things that these tools and approaches could help us all learn how to be better engaged with one another. So I look forward to in a future episode getting the chance to read and recommend. And now, Tim, I want to pass it over to you for whatever you'd like to recommend today. Yeah. Can I can I do a quick response to that before? Oh, no, that of course. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. 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 You're not, you're not you're not you're not too rigid. Here. No, no, okay, no. That's good. There are Thanks no rules. The, no rules on the, teaching in high graciousness. <laughs> I appreciate it. I just I mean, I, what you just said at the very end, actually, I feel like it's something worth stating again more explicitly is that I don't do any of this work alone. We've kind of got a community, an intellectual community of people who are really committed to this in their individual work, in their classrooms. Some of them are stepping into roles, helping to lead various organizations that are part of this kind of network of bridging organizations right now is a lot of the language that gets used. And part of why the like the language of deliberative pedagogy even came to be was we were all sitting around, we were all going to just like do our own articles and submit to different journals. And we're like, how do we help make a case to our department heads and deans and others, as some of us were junior faculty, of like, how how do we kind of make this this argument? And so we kind of landed on this language that I think has given a lot of us a reference point to, to doing some of this work. And I, and I will say the Creating Space for Democracy book that follows up as kind of a complement to that book, it's a primer on dialogue and deliberation in higher ed, is, is really quite similar to, right? A lot of these cases, different disciplines... And I will say that one is about a lot more different process models. The deliberative pedagogy book is very much a, a very much deliberation. The other one is very much a broader frame of dialogue and deliberation. So just to mm. just to say it, but like being part of a community, I think to me is really important that most of the things I do are collaborative, right? So there's only some some of my kind of scholarly work that's Timothy J. Schaefer, and most of it's that and that name and a bunch of other folks. But the thing, I guess the thing that I, I've been thinking a lot about, and maybe it's because I'm I'm doing a kind of a revision of a of a book chapter, and it's and you were just using this language of around peace. And mm. there's a bunch of conversations lately that have been kind of framed around that. I'm I'm doing some fascinating work back in my alma mater. If I can do like two things here, this would be great. Yeah, no rules. I, I love it. This is great. And I guess I could probably just do it anyway, and you have to begrudgingly accept it. But so I, I'm glad you're appreciating it. Um, it's really Andrew, the podcast editor, who's uh, in control of all of us at this oh, point. Oh, okay, okay. Well, so yeah, so so if you actually hear this, you know that Andrew's been yes. um, uh, accepting. We love if not, you, Andrew. Then, yes, you know, wonderful editing skills. Um, but I did I did my undergrad at Saint Bonaventure University, a small liberal arts college, a Franciscan school. But it's the home of a poet by the name of Robert Lax. And he, in the early 20th century, there was this cottage out in the woods that Thomas Merton, who was this kind of monastic writer who wrote about war and things in, in, in the middle of the, the, the 20th century, 
that they're trying to reclaim this cottage for civil discourse. So I've got involved in these conversations. So I've been thinking a lot about peace because they were both really strong advocates for this work. And I'm revising this, this chapter around peace and dialogue. And it really got me thinking about how, how do we think about this in a, in a way that is about the person, but it's also about the way that we exist in the world. And the, the, the line that I use all the time is, how do we live well with one another? And we can take that in, in a lot of big ways. But I would point as a recommendation, um, one of the wonderful mentors that I've benefited so much from and kind of the, the, the professional walk, but also personal in a ways, he passed away just a few years ago, but his name was Harold Saunders, Hal Saunders. And he helped develop actually the sustained dialogue model. But he has this beautiful line in a book that he published in the late 90s, 1999, I believe, called A Public Peace Process. And he has this line in there. And I, you could probably find it. I'm going to say a phrase. and You could probably do a quick Google. And it's the sort of thing that I, I used to have tacked up on my office door. But I think it's so beautiful and such a powerful reminder of how to think about this. So my recommendation would be check out Harold Saunders' A Public Peace Process. And the line is this, dialogue is a process of genuine interaction through which human beings listen to each other deeply enough to be changed by what they learn. Each makes a serious effort to take others' concerns into her or his own picture, even when disagreement persists. No participant gives up her or his identity but each recognizes enough of the other's valid human claims that he or she will act differently toward the other. So as I think about that sense of that willingness to listen, it's not about changing your mind or being compelled to do so, but creating a space to have some degree of intellectual humility and to recognize that you might know a whole lot, you might have a bunch of technical knowledge, All the, especially for academics, we, we feel pretty confident in those things. And yet still, what do we not know? And where does something like dialogue afford us an opportunity? And it might come from students in a first semester class, or it might come from, from the grandma who walks into some community conversation and you're looking at them and saying, what the hell are you doing here? And you realize they got a lot to say and it's pretty important and you might want to listen. Listening deeply enough to be changed by what you learn is a hugely important practice. Tim, it is absolutely fabulous to have been connected with you for this conversation. And we're going to be doing a lot of talking, even if it's just one way, because I have so much that I want to continue to learn from you and your collaborators. Thank you so much for your generosity on coming on the show today. It's been a wonderful opportunity. Thank you so much. Thank you once again to Timothy J. Schaefer for joining me on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. Today's episode was produced by me, Bonnie Stahoviak. It was edited by the ever-talented Andrew Kroger, who always keeps us guessing in terms of what stays and what goes and does such an exceptional job. Podcast production support was provided by the amazing Sierra Smith. Thanks to you so much for listening. If you've yet to sign up for the weekly emails, you'll get an update with all the show notes from the most recent podcast episode. This one with Tim is going to be amazing. So you got to go over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe, and you'll receive an email once a week with the show notes and other resources that don't show up on the podcast. Thank you so much for being a part of the Teaching in Higher Ed community, and I'll see you next time.